Amen. What great truths for us this morning to grasp that truly God is great. His name is glorious. If you're a guest with us today, you see some kiddos heading towards the back, an army of them. And if you have a kid up through first grade, uh, right now they're having someone in the back that will be doing a kids teaching time with them. And so you're welcome for them to go to the back if you would like to engage in some more uh, kid, kid appropriate um, level of teaching. And so uh, we always want to be praying for them as they go that we believe here that discipleship happens at a very early age of the process begins where children begin to learn right from wrong and learn what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so we're thankful for this time. We always want to recognize and remember that this is a special time for them to get to engage God's word. If you have a copy of God's Word in some form, I would love for you to join me this morning in Luke's Gospel of Jesus in chapter 18. We're actually going to spend our time this morning in chapter 19, but I want to kind of fill in the space between uh, last week and and the passage that we will work through this week to, to keep the contextual flow going. I want you to understand like where we're going. So if you're new and you've not been here, Luke's Gospel describes the life of Jesus from birth through his death. And so we have been walking very slowly through that. And so in the timeline of Christ, we are now at a place where Jesus is getting very near to his death. He is journeying towards Jerusalem and is getting very close to his destination. Jesus came to to be born so that he might die for us. And he is getting very near. He is drawing near to that city. And that's where we find ourselves in this story. So we have seen Jesus, the king, We have seen him painting a very vivid picture for us of the kingdom of God on the canvas of ordinary people and ordinary events and a very subversive approach to the establishment of a kingdom as they knew it at that time. So he's coming completely opposite, but it was very revolutionary. His message was very much flipping upside down uh, the kingdom as they would know it. And, and, And he has carefully crafted this teaching by walking us through and introducing the characteristics of the kingdom. So what is this kingdom going to be like that we speak on? What, what will he be like as king? And last week as we looked in God's word, Jesus would show us the keys to the kingdom. I talked about how he would show us this is how you come to the kingdom. How we are to approach this upside down kingdom that he has reign over. And, and through our time last week, we saw the very gentleness of Jesus as he is being welcomed by parents who are bringing their infants to him. And, the, and all the disciples are saying, you know, you got rebuking them, saying, we don't have time for this. And yet Jesus says, listen, let the children come to me. If you want to enter the kingdom that I am talking about, if you want to enter that kingdom, you don't get there through power, You don't get there through performance. You don't get there through prestige. He says, you come to me like this little child. He says, this is the the kingdom entry is even different than what the world would offer. You come like this little child. Completely dependent on him. This is very foundational for us. When we come to Jesus as king, we come to him falling on his grace. Completely helpless like a child is to a parent. Then he used the second teaching to show what kingdom entry is not like. And he used the teaching of a rich young ruler who had much. 
He was a very moral and respected person. This was not an evil man. This was someone who followed the rules, who was very moral and who was very well respected, but yet he was unwilling to come to Jesus on his terms. In fact, he inquired and asked, what terms, how do I get to the kingdom? And Jesus tells him, but yet he went away from Jesus sad because he had so much wealth. And so Jesus would tell his disciples in that moment, man, wealth and the love of worldly things can keep you from the kingdom. The disciples would then tell him, Jesus, we've left everything. We've left our homes. And Jesus said, listen to me. There will be no one who has given up things for the kingdom that won't receive an abundance, both in this life and in the world to come. So he doesn't promise them worldly treasures because that is not consistent with God's economy. He's not saying give up all this stuff and I'm going to give you a lot of stuff. He says, I'm going to give you something that will make you truly rich. I'm going to give you real treasure. Jesus would speak to them in Luke 9 on a very similar topic and I can't but imagine that their minds would be drifting back to where Jesus had told them, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will gain it. So he introduces himself by saying that the kingdom has arrived in him, yet he points to a kingdom to come. So grasping this truth is one of the, of the kingdom of God of being kind of bookended together between Jesus' first coming and Jesus' return, which, which we wait for, is not only difficult for us to grasp, because it is, but even his own disciples had trouble wrapping their mind around it. It kind of caught them off guard, although Jesus had been walking with them and telling them, this is coming This is how it's going to happen. I'm going to die. I'm going to leave. You guys need to be prepared. And it was just like they just could not get it. I often think about my own kids. Bedtime at our house comes as an absolute shock every single night. My kids are eight years old. And we have been going to bed with the exception of some weekends and that sort of thing at the same time every night. And so it's like it's the first time that I've ever mentioned it to them, although for 365 days a year for eight years they have heard this and every night we get ready to go to bed we can have dinner watch a little tv play a game you know uh get ready for bed and then I can say all right girls it's time to brush your teeth and get in the bed what what's this bedtime you speak about and 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 I kind of get this from the disciples I want you to see this with me 18 look at verse 31 so Jesus let's read together Jesus takes the 12 And he says to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles. He will be mocked. He will be shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. He said, look, the prophets 700 years ago talked about this. And now 700 years later, it's about to happen, guys. You understand this. And look what it says in verse 34. But they understand none of these things. They understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. So follow me. Jesus tells his guys, listen, guys, it's about to get bad, okay? You remember all of this prophecy that you've studied since you were a good, young, Jewish little boy. And you've taught to be reminded about what the Messiah were going to be. And you have proclaimed, I've stood with you at Caesarea Philippi, and I said, who do people say that I am? And you say that I am the Son of God. You recognize me to be the prophet that the Messiah would speak towards. Remember what Isaiah said. Well, all that he said is about to go down in Jerusalem. 
Okay, so we're walking towards Jerusalem. It's about to happen. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be spit on. I'm going to be murdered. But listen, I will rise again. So stay focused and stay faithful. And as soon as he gets the words out of his mouth, Scripture said they didn't get it. Totally shocked and surprised. Now, no one ever accused these guys of lighting up the classroom, okay? These are, these are guys who are very much simple and drawn out from, so that God may display his perfect power. But this is like borderline idiotic. He says, guys, I'm about to die. And they say, I, I'm, I'm not really sure what you mean by that. So why are they missing Well, the disciples here are urging Jesus towards Jerusalem because they believe that when they get to Jerusalem, Jesus is going to be crowned king. They believe that he is going to establish his reign, his eternal reign, this new heaven and new earth. They believe that it is coming and he will be in power. So the kingdom concept of right now but not yet bookends to the kingdom, they can't wrap their mind around that. And I'm going to unpack that a little more in a minute. Let's keep reading verse 35 through 40. As we read through that in verse 35 through 43, we see that Jesus heals a blind beggar. Now, I'm not simply just passing over this text but because it's not important, because it's very important. But over the verse-by-verse teaching on Luke, we have covered the healing nature of Jesus several times, countless times. The incredible passion and power of Jesus as he would physically heal many and feed many and raise the dead despite that he is on a spiritual mission. So he came to seek and save the lost, but yet he is compassionate. He heals the sick. But I believe solely to bring glory to himself and to point to a deeper healing need in their heart. And we've talked about this over and over as Jesus' characteristic. And we, know that, and we know that this to be but a, but, but a shadow of the spiritual disease and death that is in our hearts. That we need Jesus to heal We know that the physical healing is still temporary because life is temporary. But yet we know this points to the fact that Jesus can heal and restore spiritually dead people back to life. So I don't want to just glance over the magnitude of the nature of Christ that is seen all throughout the journey of Luke. And then we get to chapter 19. And for the first 10 verses, we get to encounter our good old friend, the wee little man once again, Zacchaeus. Now like the previous passage, for a guy so little... He has gotten thematically a huge amount of airtime all throughout Luke. I have referenced Zacchaeus a lot of times through this passage because so much of the issues of that culture during this time, it revolved around Jesus confronting counterculturally and the issues he he encountered counterculturally very much are wrapped up in Zacchaeus' story. Because on one hand, you have this Zacchaeus figure who is the Jewish representative of the Roman Empire who was helping oppress the Israeli nation. So on one side, you've got this Roman Empire and you've got people that like Zacchaeus, he was the figure for that type of people who were oppressing the Israeli nation. And then on the other hand, you have the Pharisees and you have the religious elite who hated them and they hated everything about them. And then right in the middle, you have Jesus. And so Jesus settles the tension by revealing once again his counterculture agenda that he came to seek and save the lost. We've seen this. We've seen this parallel in all of his conversations of the tax collectors and sinners that Jesus is spending time with and the Pharisees who are opposed to that and Jesus standing right in the middle of the mess and saying, I came to seek and save the lost. I came to heal the sick, guys. You are well. They need 
healing. That's why we're here and spending time with him. And we learn much from this theme that Jesus could have spent all of his time in the synagogue. He could have spent all of his time discussing theology. He, he was the writer. He could have gone into the synagogue and put on a clinic and people would have flocked to hear him. Could have had this perpetual Bible study, but he didn't because he was on a mission. He says, I came to seek and save the lost. So this morning on the heels of this context, we're going to be led by Jesus into a parable where out of all of this commotion, all this stuff that is taking place, he is going to speak a very timely word to kingdom citizens. So he has been speaking about the coming kingdom and the need to be brought into that kingdom. But now this morning, he's going to say, look, this is the kingdom citizens. You who are my followers, you need to hear this word. And based on that, I want us to consider this morning a question that I believe will serve as the framework on which we're going to build our understanding today. And the question is this. The question is this. What are you doing with your weight what are you doing with your weight? This is not a sermon on dieting. This is W-A-I-T, okay? I don't want to ask the question about what you're doing with your own weight. What are you doing with your weight? As we live in between times, Jesus wants to speak a truth to us today who are followers of Jesus. And that is that he wants us to make the most of our time spent between his first coming, which we currently are looking at in the book of Luke, and the second coming, which we are seeing foreshadowed in the book of Luke. And to see that our life is to be used for a purpose. That, that you have a purpose in this life. That the gift of life given to us by God is actually an investment in us. So what are you doing with your weight? We live in a culture and a world that spends millions and millions and billions and billions of dollars to try and persuade you to waste the weight of your life on things that do not matter. The objective on your life and on earth is not career advancement. It is not raises. It is not climbing the corporate and social ladder. We will see today that, it, that if that is the end goal, then we are off the rails. That in a steady flow of the culture, this is not the counterculture kingdom Jesus speaks on. And the scary thing that I see among the church today is that over time, the impact on the persuasion and the erosion of values and foundations from the world among Christians is causing a slow erosion of our priorities to the point that we are lulled so subtly into a place of waste and misplaced priorities. John Piper describes it like this. He says, I am wired by nature to love the same toys that the world loves. I start to fit in. I start to love what others love. I start to call earth home. And before you know it, I am calling luxuries needs and using my money just the way unbelievers do. I begin to forget the war. I don't think much about people perishing. Missions and unreached people drop out of my mind. I stop dreaming about the triumphs of grace. I sink into a secular mindset that looks first to what man can do, not what God can do. And it is a terrible sickness. And so the question this morning is not necessarily what will we choose to do with our weight, but rather, are we living out the weight 
the way God has called his followers to live. Now, this is not a sermon about material possessions and riches. We looked at that last week. This is not a guilt trip sermon for having things. In fact, there are many times in God's word where he commends wealthy people. The truth that you and I must engage in this morning is are we stewarding the investment that God has given us? And you will see this morning from our passage that we have all been given the same thing. You say, wait a minute, I look across the room, I don't have the same thing as everybody else. Watch the text. We have all been given the same thing. Join me in chapter 19. Let's begin reading in verse 11. So Jesus, as they heard these things, Jesus proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem. And because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So once again, Jesus knew what was going on here, okay? He knew that the disciples were missing the truth. And he wanted to be sure and to get them to understand what was taking place here. They actually thought that the kingdom of God, the eternal reign of God was about to happen. They, like often us, had missed how the coming of Jesus would happen. In Isaiah, he would be rejected and not be esteemed. He would be a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. But we know that he would return victorious, and they had missed that. So they were very excited. Jerusalem was 17 miles from Jericho, and the Passover season was very near. So crowds would be flooding up to Jericho, to the holy city. And they see this this energy that comes from, from people coming into the city for this holy time of year. And they're thinking, man, what better occasion than for in the midst of this Passover season where we're celebrating the king to come for the king to come. How incredible will this be? They're building it up in their minds as the crowds are flooding in. And they were looking for this incredible outbreak of his redemptive power and for him to peek out in Jerusalem as king. There was so much expectation of Jesus finally being put in his rightful place. And he needed the disciples to get the kingdom concept. He needed them to see that, this is, that his final victory was not coming then. But it did not mean that he was suffering defeat. It meant that he was beginning his victory march that would end upon his second coming. And he needed them to see this. So look at verse 12. He said, therefore, this parable. A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. So calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten, gave them ten minas. And he said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens, they hated him. And they sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Now we're close enough to school getting back. So let me just kind of nerd out on history for just a minute with you. So this is, this is important. This is so contextually like Jesus, man. So Jesus is about to teach a parable that would just hit home in the current political landscape of Palestine, okay? So the region they're living in was going through a very similar political scene that he would parallel to this passage. The Romans, who were currently in control, avoided giving the title of king to describe their rulers. But they would allow some of the rulers in the eastern portions of the provinces in which they had had conquered, he would allow them at certain seasons to be given the title of king. So King Herod was a leader who had been given the title of king. Well, now in this context, Herod has died. Herod has died and he has given half of his kingdom to Archelaus, one of his, his, his descendants. But he had not given them the title of king. The kingdom passed, but the title of king did not, okay? So follow with me. So, so Archelaus assembles an entourage to go to Rome to ask Caesar for the title of king. 
This is all happening historically. And there was a ton of opposition to his appointment. The people did not like his rule. And people hated him because there was an instance, he was so ruthless, at one point he had killed 3,000 Christians, uh, Jews, one Sabbath at Passover time, literally stacking their bodies in the temple. This guy was evil and ruthless and was opposed. And so he is coming to ask Caesar. And Jesus tells this parable about a nobleman who went to a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. And, And he called his servants together. So now hot on the heels of this, I mean front page news stuff here, Jesus tells a story about what his kingdom will be like using this political situation in their culture to show that his ascent to Jerusalem would be what it would be like. Now the difference obviously is that Jesus was a good king and he would be crowned king. And though opposition would come to him along this journey, it would not be for his wrongdoings like Archelaus, but instead because of his claims as Messiah. So the king of the parable on leaving for this mission, he stops back to our parable and he gives 10 of his servants each a mina. He gives them each the same thing. Now in this time, a mina would be like about three months salary. So for someone, it was a laborer and a servant in the kingdom. He had given them three months salary for them, about a hundred days worth of labor. Now this is important. This story has often been confused with the parable of the talents, the parable of talents that we had covered early in Luke. Now, in the parable of the talents, Jesus gave three different servants different types of gifts or talents. He gave them different levels of things, and they were judged on how well they stewarded those things. Well, in the parable of the talents, the talents were gifts and and our spiritual gifts. And so we see in that parable that God gives us varying levels of gifts, but we're all to use whatever he's given us for the sake and advancement of the kingdom, for his glory. But now in this parable, all servants had received the exact same deposit. They each had received a mina. Each received the same thing. So this parable is not a parable of gifts, but about investment. We'll look at that in a moment. Keep reading with me. So when this nobleman returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know where, why they had, what they had gained from doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your minas has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, you good servant. Because you have been faithful in this very little, you're going to have authority over ten cities. Over ten cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Good job. But then another came and said, Lord, here is your mina which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Then why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might at least collect some interest on it. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he already has ten minas. And Jesus says, I tell you that to everyone who has more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, 
Bring them here and slaughter them before me. So look what happens here. The king returns home. And he judges his servants based on what they had done with the investment. So now we don't get to see what happens to all ten. But Jesus uses three to make a very vivid point and to let you see about what investments they had made. The good ones and those who did not go as well. So the first servant comes to the king and says, I've grown this, you know, 10, 10, I've got 10 more than what you gave me. And the servant says, you know, Jesus, the, the nobleman says, well done. And he commends him. And he says, you're going to be over 10 cities. Now, this is quite interesting. The beauty of the commendation for him is that now the servant was ruling alongside with the king. I think for a servant during that time, this would have been major. He was now in the inner circle with the king. He used to be a servant, and now he is actually getting to be in fellowship and constant communion with the king. And in reference to this passage, as we think about this, we serve not for what we get, but because we get to be with Christ. Read this recently in relation to this passage I read, this, this, this quote. It says, The splendor of the cities committed to them will be far less important than the fact that they now are the viceroys of the Lord and therefore among those closest to him and thus will always have access to him and be able to speak to him and tarry in his presence at all times. Their reward is that in the end the Lord will receive them with honors that they will be privileged to speak and to live with Jesus forever for heaven does not consist in what we shall receive so we're thinking about our eternal destination heaven does not consist in what we shall receive whether this be white robes and heavenly crowns or ambrosia and nectar but rather in what we shall become namely the companions of our king so hear me heaven for us will be incredible and will be full of captivating things. I really believe it'll be just so captivating. But the beauty of heaven is not what we will be like. The beauty of heaven is not what we will eat and what we will look like. But the beauty of heaven is the fact that we will be in unending communion with God. The fact that we will be with him. We aren't going to be floating around with a harp singing hymns for seven trillion years. It's going to be amazing But the most incredible thing about this is that we will be with him. That's a kingdom rich. Scripture even says that we don't even, we won't even need a son, S-U-N. Because God is going to be our light. He is going to be our son. So the second guy comes. And much like the first, the nobleman says, well done. You're going to be over five cities. So the first gained 1,000%, the second 500%. And, 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 and he, I believe that we see here such a, I know it's semantics, but we see such a humble spirit of the first two servants. You may want to look at this in your, circle this in your Bible. They say, Lord, look at what your minas have earned. Do you see even the humility of a servant who is serving well? They didn't say, look, God, look what I brought to you. I got, I got my mina and I got my investment. I'm going to turn it back to you. You know, they came to him and they said, Lord, look, look at what your mina did. They commended it. It was all about what God had given them. They realized that it was not from him. Now, there is a ton of spiritual truth here for us. We don't have things, okay? We do not have things. Everything, every good gift is a gift from God. So like the servant mentioned here, a good servant of Jesus is one who recognizes that all we have is for him and for his kingdom expansion. So our money is not our money. It's God's money. 
My house was not given to me to invest in myself, but to invest for a spiritual profit. My family was gifted to me to invest for a spiritual profit. My job is given to me to invest for a spiritual profit. Everything is given to us to invest for a kingdom profit. But then the celebration ends in our parable. Things shift to a pretty bleak scenario. The other one comes to the master with the one mina, and he has done absolutely nothing with it. He even goes so far as to accuse the master from stealing what he did not gain. Like the money was the servants to begin with. He says, I was afraid of you. I was afraid that you would come and take the gains from what the servant had made. Now this is just ridiculous. This guy is delusional. He accuses the master from taking from him. He says, you're an evil man. I knew you were going to, or you're a hard man. I knew you were going to reap what you did not sow. You didn't put in, I put in the work and you're going to come get all the profits. Very selfish and possessive of the mina. But isn't that so true of us? Don't we look out for what we may gain from something? Don't we feel that if we use what God has gifted us with, that we should get a cut on the profits? We did the work, God. Shouldn't I get something for this? An accolade, an attaboy, a pat? Shouldn't I get something out of this besides just your glory? Here's a news flash for us. Jesus has deposited the gospel in us and you and I were spiritually bankrupt. The account was in the negative. And Jesus puts in us the gospel story as a deposit, the truth of Jesus and salvation. He puts that in us. And because of that, heaven forbid that we be found sitting on our hands doing nothing with the deposit that we have been entrusted I've been beat up with this this week. Jesus has rescued us. Jesus has bought us with a great price. We're going to see in the next few weeks that Jesus was beaten beyond recognition. That means beaten until he is not able to be recognized as being Jesus anymore. And may we not be found squandering what has been entrusted to us by doing nothing. The servant says to the master, I'm af- I was afraid to be active, but at least I can be conservative. I wrapped it up in a safe handkerchief and hid it away till you returned. And yet, don't we do the same things? We have been given the gospel, the message that has rescued us The message that is the keys to life on which apart from it, people will live eternally separated from God. Let that sink in on us. But instead of sharing this good news with others, we preserve our Christian tradition. We attend four to six Bible studies per week. We send our children to Bible school. We hang out only in Christian circles so we can block the world out from us. And we take a Christian conservative point of view on things. And we wrap the gospel in a handkerchief and we sit on it. We focus so much 
when we consider the calling of God on our lives on just the sins of commission. He says, don't do this. And when we go against that command, we've committed the sin of commission. So we're like the rich young ruler. I'll just follow the rules. I can do that. Don't get into my stuff, God, but I'll follow the rules. But what about when he tells us to do something and we don't do it? Sins of omission. At what point as followers of this radical calling Jesus has placed on us, did we allow our hearts to become so desensitized to this radical calling of Jesus to go and share with the gospel to where Christianity for us has become just basically doing right versus wrong. And the marching orders to share Jesus with others for Christians is something that has become optional. Evangelism. Sharing about the good news of how we were rescued from death and brought back to life has been something that we have said is reserved for those who are gifted in it. When it is the purpose for our existence is to bring glory to God. This life exists so that the glory of God may spread to all nations as a testimony to all people and then he's going to return. So this is not home. We are not to live in a way in which we put aside the marching orders so that we may just do life on this ball that's spinning around the sun. He has called us as his children to live intentionally, to share with others the truth of Jesus. Now let me, let me finish this parable. See how he finishes this up. The master says, take away the minna from the one and give it to the one who has ten. And he says, who has much more will be given And he ends by saying, even what you think you have and what you think you're secure in will be stripped from you. And then the last verse seems so harsh where Jesus says, these enemies of mine who did not want to reign over them, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Wow, Jesus, that's kind of a different mindset, right? Like you're the loving and gracious. Now you're talking about slaughtering people in front of you. Seems harsh. Seems like the Old Testament, God. But the truth is, church, I want you to see the beautiful grace and provision of Jesus in this passage. And that Jesus coming into this world forces every person to decide. And the truth is, the matter is a decision of life and death. That's the fact. To those who have invested his investment, there will be unthought of rewards. To those who have hidden it, shame. And to those who reject him, death. Death. What a challenging parable. What a convicting parable. And one that I think we need to be sure to dig in and just mine out the marrow. Every believer of Jesus has been given the same gospel deposit to invest. All of us. When Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I commanded you, that was not instructions to the church staff. That was not instructions to leadership at that time. He was speaking to his disciples and the followers that were waiting for him to ascend. And he says, look, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach. So every believer has the same responsibility. This is not a question of giftedness, but of faithfulness. So I want to ask you a couple of closing questions 
as we consider the gospel implications of this parable on us. First of all, are you serving faithfully through obedience to God's word? These are self-reflective questions. I really want you to, to answer. These are not just sermon points. These are questions for you to think about in your life. Are you serving faithfully through obedience to God's word? James 4, 17 says that whoever knows the right thing to do, listen, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, omission, for him it is sin. 1 John 2, 29 says, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. 1 John 2, 3, and by this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments. Not keeping his commandments to know him, but the sign that we have truly come to know him if we keep his commandments. Let me ask you, are you submitting all of your life to the entirety of God's word? Do you desire above all to align your life to Jesus' calling and to invest the gospel deposit on your life for his glory? Do you desire that? If you read God's word, and you come across any command and you walk away from it and say, that one's not for me, and you don't align your life to it, that should be a red flag in your life. God's word is incredibly clear to us in regards to what we are to be and do as his followers. The issue is an issue of faithfulness. In James chapter 1, verse 22 through 25, he would write, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. James says to read the word and not do what it says is to deceive yourself. Brothers and sisters, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Ignorance to the word is not an excuse. You must take God's word and dig into it and, and be faithful to it. I ask you today, how are you doing in this? In the society we live in, if we picked up God's word and read it for every minute that we picked up our phones and scanned social media, we would absorb chunks and chunks of the word. And yet we have the God-breathed word collecting dust. While we scan pictures and on pictures of what our friends had for lunch, and we watch videos of sharks attacking stuff. When God's word is there and it is alive and it is active. This is not a book that I set on the counter and it is like every other dead book. Jesus says, my word is alive and active and it is sharper than any two-edged sword. Now hear me, I'm, I'm not on a social media witch hunt, but I'm on a rant for God's people to be a people of the word. If all you get every week of the word is the hour that I share out of it, and that is the, that's all you're getting, you are missing let the God of the universe speak to you. Don't just let me speak through God-inspired messages. Let the God that wrote this thing, that literally whoo, breathed it into existence, let him speak to you. Don't be deceived. See what God tells you and do it. It brings him so much glory and honor. Secondly, are you serving others in love 
as a response to the love you have experienced. The gospel is a love story. This deposit in your life, it's a love story. The gospel, this mina that we have been given is a story of love, not of condemnation. In John 3, 17, says that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. It is a message of hope and love. 1 John 4, 7 through 8 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. But listen, take the word for what it says. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. 1 John 3, 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Now, I don't want to be harsh in this because, if anything, this has been something that I have just been beaten up with all week. Man, I am in the middle of this text, okay? I've not mastered this text. I am sitting under its authority and it is pounding on my life and my emotions and my thoughts. But listen, we live in a narcissistic culture where we are ingrained to think only about our lives and the circumstances of our lives and to measure what is going on around us by how it affects us. So even when we receive the good news of Jesus, this gospel that's deposited into our lives and God graciously provides for us in this life, we spend the majority of our time thinking about what that means for me. What does that mean for me? Newsflash, the world does not revolve around you or me. This should not be so among God's people. Listen, those who have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit are not self-absorbed narcissists, but rather selfless disciples who love the way Jesus loved. Love is our motivator. But hear me, church. Jesus has a calling on your life to love others and serve others. He has entrusted the gospel in your hearts. And he doesn't tell us to embrace it and cuddle it and absorb it and relish in it and curl up with it in a self-centered way. That's the antithesis of God's central word. His word is a sending word. And so to take it and to read about a sending God and to not be sent is to not live out what we are learning. It's to be a seer of the word but not a doer. Listen to 1 John. Anyone who does not love does not know God. May we be a people who see our hearts and may we, may we confess and repent of our self-centeredness and thinking only about us and our kingdoms. And may we confess to God, I have abused the receiving of your love. I relish in it, but I don't share it with other people. God, heaven forbid that I live my life in such a way that I think only about myself and my surroundings and miss the global work that you are doing to establish your kingdom to the ends of the earth. And finally, are we seeking the things of the kingdom or the things of this world? Listen to this, First John. It says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Romans 8, 5 says that those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Let me ask you this morning. In your core, what really matters? In the depths of your heart, what really matters to you? Think about your day. 
what do you spend the majority of your time centered on, focused on? What determines the rise and fall of your emotions? What affects you for the good and for the bad? Whatever that drives you apart from Christ runs the risk of becoming an idol in your life that you worship. We can call it what we want, but when our heart and mind is consumed with the kingdom, it changes the economy by which we make choices and decisions. Has your thoughts about family, your career, popularity, being liked, having lots of friends, having lots of money, has that overtaken your thoughts about the kingdom? Being awakened through salvations means that we now have an appetite for the things of God. God's word says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek that first. And then all these things will be added to you. I close with this quote. John Piper says it like this. If we only trust Christ to give us gifts and not himself as the all-satisfying gift, then we do not trust him in a way that honors him as our treasure. We simply honor the gifts because they are what we really want, not him. So this morning, what will it be? Church, we have been entrusted with an amazing deposit on our life. Christians, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have been deposited a mina. You have been given the gospel. And we have been told what to do with that. So the question of calling is not uncertain. It is very clear. Now, does that manifest itself in a variety of different ways? Absolutely. Sometimes that calling is to your neighborhood. Sometimes that calling is to the ends of the world. But it is a calling nonetheless. You have been given the gospel. We have been given instructions on what to do with it. And we have been called to go. And now Jesus looks at us, his servants, and says, what will you do with this weight? What will you do with the deposit? May God help us to invest it wisely for the glory of God and the advancement of his kingdom. Let's pray together. Father, thank you this morning. God, I thank you when your word beats us up. God, I know in my life I confess so much of what I dressed in there, Father, is an open confession on my life. Father, I can be so self-focused to where I lose sight of needs and hurts and pains around me. I can even lose sight of the lostness around me because I'm consumed with what's going on with me. But Father, you have deposited in our hearts not just news, but it's news that our, as Christians we have experienced to be truth. We were blind and now we see because of you, God. We were dead and now we are spiritually alive in Christ. We were in old creation and you say now that you are we are a new creation we were slaves and we were enemies and now you say we are sons and we are daughters 
God, that is a glorious truth, Father. May you convict any of us that ever take that truth for granted and live as if that is not supreme. God, may you please work in our hearts right now. Holy Spirit, may you do a work in us to mold us, Father. May you take this word and may it shape and conform and mold our hearts into an image that looks like more of the heart of a Christ follower. Father, help us as a church. God, I tremble at thinking about the deposit that you have placed in us with the gospel and the people that you are bringing to our lives who need that truth. I tremble at how we are stewarding that, Father. Father, may we not see that as, as happenstance and see that as coincidence. God, you are literally assembling a people who have the truth that sets people free and you are bringing people to us that need to see that truth. May we be found faithful as the investors. May we be found faithful as one who is managing what is yours. God, find us faithful. Challenge us, Father, as a church. God, because we know that you are gifting us and blessing us right now in this season, but we know that uh, if we sit on that mind of God, that you will take it and give it to another. God, may it not be so for us. Please, Father, help us. Please show us grace and mercy and patience. And please lead us, Father, as we need you to lead us, God. We want you to be glorified in this city, and we want it to extend to the nations, God, so that those who don't even know your name may know the beauty of Jesus. So God, in his name, we ask and pray during this time that you do what you desire to do. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. If you will stand, this is our time of response. What are you gonna do?